to the Easy Peasy Podcast, where we discuss living better through permaculture, mindfulness, decentralization, freedom, flow, agorism, anarchy, and more. We'll discuss how to solve life's complex problems with simple solutions. This is Mike the Polymath coming from the Easy Peasy Workshop in Indianapolis, Indiana, the crossroads of America. Thanks for joining. by Michael T. Whistler. Chapter 9, The Breakup. Sitting at a hotel bar in San Antonio with his co-worker Rob, drinking beer and taking shots of whiskey, the man receives a video call on his smartphone. It's her. He smiles, this being unexpected. He answers a bit tipsy. Hey baby, what's going on? Oh, not much. What are you up to? She asks. He points the phone at Rob, showing him to her and her to him, having told them both about each other. Rob waves into the camera. At the bar with Rob, having fun chatting. He turns the camera back on himself. Well, don't let me keep you. Just call when you're done, okay? She she asks in a sweet voice. Sure thing. Give me maybe an hour. I need to take a shower. Okay, sounds good. Talk to you in a bit. Bye, he says, though he wants to say more, and hangs up. She sure is pretty, Rob says. Don't I know it. I'm just trying not to fuck it up this time. She had been the man's first ever girlfriend. Not this time around, but back when he was just a young teenager. They got together in the eighth grade. It was the best three months of his young life up to that point, but as young couples do, they broke up. Or rather, she broke up with him, although he was never quite sure why. He had moved on, though. He had dated other girls in high school, one in particular, a beautiful and thoroughly lovely woman, about 5'1", 95 pounds, with a more than ample bosom for the ripe age of 16. Her, ready for sex, him not so much. He was scared. He thought about marrying her, but instead decided he wasn't ready for that either and broke up with her for lack of a better idea of what to do. Thinking it was all or nothing, a young Christian boy confused by everything he felt inside contradicting with everything he was told. He wanted to fuck, but was told it was bad, ugly, deadly, and worthy of repentance. The relationship was of a caring and loving nature, lasted nine months, which was a long time by their young standards. The singular handjob, his first ever and only orgasm of the relationship, led to a spiraling guilt complex with an increased apprehension. And the beautiful young girl was made to feel like a temptress when all she was was a human. Lovely, loving, sensual, and sexy. They both were equally frustrated but for opposite reasons. 
masturbating alone instead of together, the cruel, unfortunate, and counterproductive effect of the pressure of purity, as they had called it in his summer camp and weekly Bible study. But this woman, his first ever and most recent, had fallen back into his life by accident. They ran into each other at the bar, and the reattraction was impossible to ignore. The man's friend had, t- had tried to hit on her, but that night she only had eyes for her adolescent love, for him. They sat at the table, accidentally ignoring the rest of the people there, catching up on everything all at once. Since that night, they had been entwined, entangled once more, and it was difficult for either to resist. Rob orders another round of shots by singing some David Allen Coe lyrics. Jack Daniels, if you please, knocked me to my knees. The man joins in with a response to Rob's call. You're the only friend there's ever been that didn't do me wrong. Man, I really fucking love that woman. Told you I've known her since I was 12, right? Yep, you told me. Better make it happen, brother. The book of life doesn't write itself. You've got to pick up the pen and get to scribbling. Rob had a way of saying something exceptionally and unexpectedly profound immediately before belching, which he does on cue. He was a beer drinker, and a heavy one at that, usually between 12 and 24 a night. While they work together, the man learns to keep up, knowing he shouldn't drink quite so hard this many nights in a row, but enjoys the man's company so much that he does anyways. They spend hours drinking and smoking ganja together night after, uh, each night after working together all day. As Rob always comes well prepared, flying out of California with just shy of an ounce for each two to three week work trip. The man's uncle is the boss of the small crew and has gradually become the mutual enemy of his two employees. As he is an absolute walking tornado on the job site, causing more havoc than necessary in an effort to get the job done cheaper, faster, and still somehow good. Rob told him once, You know, I tell every one of my clients, there's good, there's fast, and there's cheap. But the best you'll ever get is two out of the three. And your uncle is trying to get us to do all three. It can't be done. I don't care how well he fucking pays us. If he's in this big of a hurry, he must have underbid the fucking job. He's always fucking doing that shit. Stressing himself out and us for no good goddamn reason. When he could have just bid the job right and made more money. He used to give us bonuses too, after most trips, before you came along. They had four beers and three shots each, not counting the two big beers at the restaurant during dinner, before splitting from the boss and saddling up to the bar. For the man, the drinking helped him wind down and loosen his tense shoulders after working with his tyrannical uncle, developing high anxiety each day and trying to shed shed its weight at night. If he hadn't been family, it might not have been so difficult. But his uncle could induce stress in just about anyone, including strangers on the sidewalk, fellow diners, waitstaff at the restaurants, pedestrians, and motorists around town. Name it. Being family just meant that the man felt more than most. Being related to the man and probably due in large part to the fact that he and his uncle were actually quite similar in terms of personality. 
The man was beginning to wonder, at times, if he would be as unbearable as his uncle in his later years. He hoped not. He hoped to be better, more relaxed, but that was impossible when living for weeks in a crummy motel, working brutal hours in the oppressive sun and heat of a mid-Texas summer. He is... He is now becoming equally irritable at times and doesn't care for what he sees of it, as it is too close to his blood-related boss's temperament. At least we're not in New Orleans anymore, he says to Rob. Fuck, mate. That was the glory hole of all clusterfucks. What a goddamn dump that town is. Good food, sure. Good music, sure. But what a fucking pigsty. Don't the people down there pick up the streets every once in a while? Man. The ci- that city's corrupt as fuck, man. I'm surprised they actually paid us instead of pocketing all that FEMA money. We were working for Jefferson Parish, not the city, Rob says. That's right, I forgot that part. Well, that's why it came through, I guess. It didn't seem like many funds were making it to the streets from the city, though. Remember the potholes we saw down downtown big enough to swallow a whole damn car mm-hmm some of those roads nearly ki- killed our rig remember the boss crashing the trailer into the live oak in that fancy side of town bending the fuck out of the rack oh man don't remind me he lost his goddamn mind how about when he rear-ended the lady in traffic because he was fucking with his cell phone she's still trying to sue you know yeah i know it says rob i'm just glad we got paid Hardly worth it, though, with all the, sh- all the bullshit we put up with. I think I lost 10 pounds down there in sweat alone, despite eating beignets, oysters, etouffee, jambalaya, and rice and beans with crab sauce every damn night, not to mention about 200 beers over the first couple of weeks and another 200 the following. Probably spent a quarter of my pay on food and beer that trip, but it was worth it. Well, maybe it wasn't. Like I said, fuck. That money's all gone now. I like New Orleans, though, despite the filth. Thought it was a wild place for wild people. He remembers picking Rob up off the barroom floor in the French Quarter on that trip, but doesn't bring it up. Rob was not a large man and didn't get into trouble as long as he drank light beer. But when the whiskey started flowing, he would get royally drunk, like tonight. Both men feeling on the verge of true inebriation. Oh man, you're making me hungry again, says Rob. How long ago was dinner? How long have we been sitting here? I'm almost drunk. Is there a Popeye's nearby? I could go for some of that fucking chicken right now. Their hotel in New Orleans was adjacent to a Popeye's chicken, which they would frequent as a second dinner after getting buzzed. Succumbing to their munchies and consuming much-needed calories given the, given the intensity of work, each consuming three to 4,000 calories a day during these trips. It seems to the man that the Popeyes in Louisiana tasted significantly better than in his home state of Indiana. They know how to make it right in Louisiana, where the franchise began. Me too, mate. Popeyes does sound good. But I've got snacks upstairs and I'm getting tired, which reminds me, I need to get out of get out of here and call my girl. Ditto, says Rob. Rob has been married for 15 years with two kids and his fair share of problems. He enjoys hanging out with the younger man as opposed to sitting alone in his hotel room. It helps him forget his problems at least for a few moments. The weed and beer also seem to provide him some relief, 
even if they don't help anything in the long term. His wife loves him when he's home, but hates him when he's gone. When he's home, he would fix things, mow the grass, and do everything she prefers not to. Taking care of the two kids and barely making the mortgage payments was not easy for either of them, especially when separated. They also pay for a private Christian school, wisely choosing not to allow the state of California to educate their children. As Malcolm X so eloquently said, only a fool would let his enemy teach his children. And Rob is no fool. He is a cabinet maker of extremely fine quality, a highly skilled tradesman, if there ever was one. He constantly impressed and taught the younger man in a way which his uncle never did. He became something of a mentor in trades work, as well as in the arts of drinking and smoking. Not that the man was without experience in these matters, but his skills did improve significantly under Rob's tutelage. An expert carpenter and concrete finisher, as well as general contractor and handyman, Rob could wrench on vehicles, run about any machine, and had once been a near-pro mountain biker in the 1980s, before the sport really took off. His body is tough as nails, but feels its age, plus some. He almost never shows it, but he is almost always in pain. He is 55, and his children are very young. When he married his wife, she was 21, and he was 42. A nice spread. Their children are now 11 and 7. They live in NorCal, near the Emerald Triangle. He has friends who are pot farmers, as well as other outlaws and renegades of various sorts. He is some kind of mix of a rancher, cowboy, punk, and construction worker, and leans heavily to the right, politically speaking. He is short and stocky, heavy for his size, with ample with an ample beer gut, <clears throat> and forearms like Popeye the Sailor Man, but gains his powers from cannabis instead of spinach. The two would always find a quiet corner, curb, or bench outside of whatever Holiday Inn or Fairfield Suites they happen to be living out of to hang out, smoke weed, and drink beer. The man remembers his first trip with the company called Riverworks. He had never met Rob before, but on the first night, they hit it off almost immediately, despite Rob's incoming skepticism about the new kid. Rob gave him a look in the hotel elevator after returning from dinner the first night, showing the universal sign for Wanna Get High? The pointer finger and thumb brought to the lips as if toking on a joint, slyly enough to where the boss didn't notice, distracted by something on his smartphone, probably work-related. The man nodded in affirmative and smiled widely. He had a friend in this small three-man crew, thank God, as he knew he would surely go crazy without one. The last thing he wanted was to sit and watch TV every night with nobody fun to talk to, seeing as his uncle was incapable of relaxation while on the job. The young man's job on the crew was as the machine operator and gopher. Go for this, go for that. Basically the grunt. His uncle never trusted him enough to do all of the operator work. Only the easy stuff, even after many trips and many hundreds of hours on the machine. His work is narrowly scrutinized and micromanaged by the uncle, despite being high quality by all accounts. They use a Vermeer S. 925TX, a mini skid steer tractor on which the operator would ride standing up on the machine's ass end. 
It is a handy device, compact enough to go into tight places, but heavy enough to do real work. With a front loader bucket, auger, and trencher implements. The Vermeer allows them allows the operator to dig the holes needed for concrete footings on which they stand 20 foot tall traffic poles rigged with signs lights a radio transmitter and boxes which collect water levels and rainfall data by way of an assortment of sensors ultimately relaying the data to local weather and traffic control agencies it is a high-tech hyper specialized road work <clears throat> on which lives sometimes depend if their job is done right, lights begin flashing automatically when the water level rises, warning travelers of danger ahead. Occasionally, the crew installs automatic swing-arm swing gates that close the road with a physical bar barrier for the moronic folks who are likely to ignore flashing lights and signs. More people drown in their cars than most people would ever imagine. Not that Rob or the man cared much about the mission while the boss finds immense honor and pride in it. The other two just want to get paid. The two men ride up the elevator to their floor and bid each other a good night. Often they would end up agreeing to grab a couple more beers from their hotel mini-fridges and meet back up later for another round after they had showered and spoke to their respective ladies. But on this particular night, for whatever reason, neither suggest it. Perhaps both having their fill for the night from the bar which they enjoyed as most hotels they stay in and most hotels in general do not have bars anymore. They don't normally drink whiskey on work nights either, which is every night of every trip, taking no days off for 20 days at a time or more. <clears throat> they wisely and independently decide not to press the idea of more beer as they, might, as they both might be tempted if the other brought up the idea. They split off and retire into their private, temporary quarters. He takes a quick shower and lays on the bed wrapped in a towel. He calls, hoping it hasn't gotten too late for her. 10 p.m. in Texas, midnight back east. Whoops, he thinks, realizing that time has gotten away from him. But since she asked him to call, he does. She answers, also laying in bed, looking stunning without any makeup on at all. Hey there, beautiful, he says, smiling but obviously a little drunk, eyes bloodshot and glazed, with a, with a flushed red face from the steamy shower. How much did y'all drink, she asks, making a half-hearted attempt to say it playfully. Enough for tonight. We were having fun. It was a tough day of work. Only a few more days left, though. You want to talk about it, she asks. He gets the sense she doesn't really want to hear about it, probably having had a tough day herself. As an intern doctor at a prestigious medical institution, and assuming she doesn't want to stay on the phone for too long, so he says no. Well, there is something I want to talk to you about, she says vaguely, before trailing off. He senses this isn't going to be good. What is it? he asks. Well, I just want to say, before anything else, I really care about you, and she begins. He suddenly knows exactly what is going on, as it had happened before. He flashes back to a memory he had not bothered to recall for many years, their original breakup. He decides to interrupt her before she can continue, feeling anger rising. What the fuck are you saying right now? Spit it out, he stutters. 
instantly having gone from a good mood to a sour one. Well, shit, if you're going to be like that, here it is. I'm seeing someone, okay? She says and waits for a response. After a moment, he says quietly but sternly, what do you mean? Or what you mean to say is seeing someone else, to be clear. He turned even redder in the camera and his jaw, with his jaw clenched, staring her down through the screen, seeing right through, seeing right through her from 1,500 miles away. Yes, she admits. Someone else. Whatever. You know what I mean. She knows he's right, but sticks to her guns. Because you were seeing me. We never made it official, she says. Ha! Official. What the actual fuck? Are you fucking joking? He pauses, trying to calm himself, but is on the verge of hyperventilation with his heart pounding in his chest. What the fuck does that even mean? He asks slowly, between breaths. I asked you to marry me, he says in the last part. I'm sorry, he says the last part quietly, feeling his heart break. There is a long pause. And I said no. No, you didn't say no. You said maybe, or at least that's what I heard. Yeah, well, we were tripping. I didn't take it seriously. Bullshit. I was serious, and you knew it. Don't fucking lie to me. I know. Please stay calm. I don't want to upset you. Then don't fucking lie to me. Please, just be honest. You did take it seriously because it was serious. You thought about it. Jesus Christ. I know you love me too, even if you never exactly said it out loud. Except you kind of did. But I didn't need to hear you say it. I could feel it. I know you. I might know you better than I know anyone or anyone knows you. I know what we felt together. God damn it. I remember being forehead to forehead with you and seeing the yin-yang in my third eye. That was the drugs she tried playing it off. Bullshit! Listen, I need you to calm down right now. You have to understand, I just can't be with you right now. There's too much going on. My job is important to me, and I need someone I can depend on, not someone who loses their mind whenever I need some space. She refers to the last visit, which had not gone particularly well. It was shortly before his trip to San Antonio, but after the visit when he proposed. They had made tentative plans to see each other upon his return, He was even considering changing flights to go to her directly. His nervousness had been obvious to her in the first moments of their first afternoon of their last visit together. He replays the whole series of events in his head. He is stammering and sweating, not knowing how to be around her, trying to bestow gifts from his latest travels and telling her everything he can about them. They eventually settle into a rhythm, go to the pool and he relaxes some she is beautiful powerfully so and he is physically stronger and more handsome than he had ever been working a real man's job and making real money though he is spending it as quickly as he'd made it taking road trips going to concerts and buying motorcycles 
At the pool, they begin to lust for each other once more and decide to take acid together again. Half a hit each. It is a bad idea for him, not being in the correct state of mind for it, carrying all of his concerns over the uncertainty of their relationship in the front of his mind. He cuts the tiny square piece of paper in two with his pocket knife, each putting a piece on their tongue and giving each other a kiss, their first since his arrival, as she rarely kissed him right away, but rather made him earn it. He had not been kissable for the first hour or so, but apparently is now. At first, the acid makes things funny, beautiful and amazing, as it always does. They swim in the cool blue water. He playfully chases her around the pool as if they are back in the eighth grade. He watches her as she climbs out of the pool, dripping wet in a slim rose petal red bikini, with her ribs poking through her skin and her private bits barely covered. She is sensuality personified, out in the Ohio sunshine, intelligent, capable, and dangerous, with a figure that rivals any playboy centerfolds. She is hard to read, but when it is on between them, it is fully on. That's the feeling he's working towards, but struggling to achieve this time around, though he can tell they are close to it. There is still difficulty in communicating, as the confusion and tension haven't quite left the air. The sun goes behind her tall building, and they go back inside, where he once again begins to worry. In the small apartment, there is no avoiding each other. He wants to talk and to fuck, in either order, but she wants to do art quietly. He becomes irritated, feeling ignored, and so she feels similarly. He starts feeling irrational. He wants answers, confirmation, commitment, love, and sex. He doesn't know what she is thinking and can no longer read her in the way he had been, to, been able to before. She is closing off to him and he feels it. Why am I even here? He asks, internally at first and then eventually manifesting into external speech, breaking her flow of painting. What do you mean? She asks. You don't seem to want me here. Sure I do. I just need some quiet time. You're kind of a lot right now. He tries to respect her wishes and leaves her to be in the living room and goes into the only other room available, laying on her bed, alone. He begins to write <clears throat> using his cell phone, holding it close to his face. Words and poems of tension and frustration, of love and hate, pour out. The acid is making him feel too much, everything all at once. He nearly finishes another rambling poem when she finally comes into the room and takes the phone from his hands mid-stanza, startling him from his intense flow of writing. She looks down at him, into his blue-gray eyes, leans down and kisses him on the forehead, then on the cheeks, then his big, crooked nose, his chin, his neck, and eventually his lips. He kisses her back, or tries to, glad for the affection but finding it difficult, still feeling so many things. He is hurting and she knows it, so she does her best to soothe him with sex. She straddles him, trying to elicit a response from his nether regions, kissing his face and neck and getting nowhere with any of it. He wants so very badly to get hard for her, now that she does seem to want him, that he no longer can, with too much anxiety, too much pressure, and too much uncertainty. Can we please just talk for a minute? 
This is not what she wants to hear, but she understands him very well, more than he understands her or himself. She knows that sex is not the comfort he needs at this moment, so she sits on the bed, folds her knees crisscross, and pats her ankles, inviting him to rest his head in her lap non-verbally, which he understands and does, also without words. She cradles his head as he lays on his back across the king-sized bed. She begins to rub his temples, which he barely notices, glad to just be held, but still feeling overwhelmed. Okay, let's talk. What's wrong? She says. There's a short pause. He chooses not to mince words. Do you love me or not? It's not that simple. Well, sure it is. Why the hell not? My job, for one. What about it? It takes a lot from me, and it has to be my priority. Also, we live in different states. The distance. I don't care. I'm not in a rush. I can give you all the time you need. I just won't lie about how I feel. That's not all. I mean, we want different things. Do we? He asks. I'm not sure if I want children, and I know that you do. But, he pauses, you would make a great mother. Would I? I'm not so sure. You definitely want them, right? Yes. What kind of husband would you be? The type that takes care of and protects the mother of my children above everything else? Above the kids? Yeah. The mother should put the kids first, and the father should put, should put the mother first, I believe. And who puts the father first? Nobody, I guess, and that's fine. Why me? Because I love you. I don't need another reason. I loved you back when we were in Mr. Christensen's algebra class, just like I do now. How I got over you the first time, I don't know. I was young... I can't remember. Maybe I didn't know how badly I loved you yet, or how rare it was, even though I did know. I remember crying then just like I'm crying now. Tears were now pouring from his eyes, collecting in deep puddles before streaming down the sides of his face. But I haven't left you. It kind of feels like you have. Call me crazy. You're not crazy. I'm sorry. I know I've been really quiet since you got here. This was true. His mildly manic nervousness was partially brought on by her quietness. He did nearly all of the talking for the entirety of the afternoon, the main source of both of their irritation, with his speed attempting to compensate for her slowness. I'm just not as certain as you, that's all. I'm not sure we're right together. Of course we are. Why else would we keep coming back to each other? Why else is it so good to see you? I just came in all mixed up, spinning like a top, and I know I was doing it too. I knew I was doing it too, but I couldn't stop because I was confused. I just wanted to kiss you and talk. I wanted to start there, here. We're talking now, finally. This is what I wanted all afternoon. I know, I'm sorry if I was acting confusing. I understand why it was weird, but I mean it. I'm not sure about kids. 
I can't be the one to stop you from having a family. I mean, we could talk about it, he says. There's always a chance we won't even be able to have kids, but I don't care. I'd want to be with you either way. I would at least want to try, he says, thinking, one, thinking wondering <clears throat> which really matters more to him, her or the possibility of biological fatherhood, if that is the choice he gives him. I do really want kids, but I promise I'm not in any rush. I know you do. She keeps rubbing his temples. And I think you would make a great husband and father for somebody. He, has, he is on the verge of sobbing, but pulls himself together, not wanting to appear childish. I'm sorry. I know I'm being too intense. I feel like if I could be chill, cool, whatever, you'd say yes. He says subtly referring to his proposal during the last visit, which they have yet to openly acknowledge. But I am who I am. I understand your apprehensions. The only reason I'm acting this way is because all of the uncertainty. <clears throat> I would be good to you, as good as any man could, probably better. I promise. I'm not perfect, but I mean what I'm saying. I know you mean it. I see that. And I see the goodness in you. But there is a pause. But what? I swear, we're so close. It seems like there's something she won't say. Please just tell me. I don't know if I would be good to you, she says. He tries to shrug it off. Just say yes to me and we can be done with it. That doesn't have to be a yes forever, just a yes for now. You can say no any day between now and the wedding, if it ever happens. That'd be the day to commit forever, but until then I just need a little certainty from you. And I, would, and I would settle down. I just want to know if we're together or not. But look at the way we were, we were all day. I don't want to cause you that kind of anxiety or pain. I'm afraid we'd hurt each other or that I would hurt you. I'm tough, he says. I can handle it, even if I get a little bruised up on occasion. I know you're not going to tell me what I want to hear or give me what I want from you all the time. That's part of what I... <clears throat> it's part part of why I want to be with you. I think you make me better, not worse. I just feel like I'm sinking, drowning, caught in quicksand from the not knowing. Not knowing whether or not you really love me. I do, but... You do? Of course, you know I do. I'm just more cautious about it is all. I'm afraid to say it out loud. I'm afraid to lead you on, and I'm not completely certain. I don't need complete certainty. I'm not entirely certain, but I feel it deep down. You seem pretty certain. I'm not. I'm just not afraid to try. I know I love you an awful lot, but I also know men fall in love with you all the time. I mean, every guy in our class was in love with you, I swear. I saw every guy you dated after me fall in love with you. But I don't fall in love with everyone, and everyone doesn't fall in love with me. I suppose that's why I'm so desperate to get commitment of some kind, because I don't want you falling in love with another man. I'm not sure how I would react. 
She isn't sure how to take this last statement. She wants to be upset by it, probably because it rings too true, but she decides not to argue or exact or ask exactly what he means by his last few words. Look, I see you. I see how good you are, how good you can be. You have a lot to offer. But I also see a lot of things that give me reason for concern. I need stability, and you do not feel stable to me right now. Well, maybe, he says with more than a touch of sarcasm, getting a little upset again, we shouldn't do acid every time we see each other. He senses that his statement might be taken as blame and redirects. Forces a weak smile and says, I'm sorry, it's my fault. I shouldn't have taken it. It wasn't a good idea this time, and I should have known better. In fact, I did know better. It got me completely overwhelmed, and I am truly sorry. I understand, she says. Maybe we should have, maybe I should have known better too. I just thought it might help us get on the same frequency, you know? But it didn't. She says, looking down into his eyes. I thought so too, and it did, sort of. It just took a while, but I think we're there now. They sit still for a moment, breathing together. She still rubbing his temples, and he no longer crying, but she is. She had been doing it for a while, though he hadn't noticed. That feels really nice. Thank you, he says, sniffling before tilting his head back and opening his eyes for the first time in minutes. Seeing hers welling up, looking into her face upside down as she continues the massage working his scalp with her fingertips. You're welcome, she says quietly. Do you want to switch, he asks. That would be nice. He sits up and they flip positions. He cradles her head in his big, warm, calloused palms, rubbing her temples with the pads and bony sides of his strong thumbs, rolling them on the soft parts of her temple as she had done for him, but harder, sensing the tension in her cranium. She lets out an audible sigh and says, That is nice. I really don't want to beat a dead horse here or argue a lost cause, but look at us. Right now. I really believe we would be good to each other. That we'd care for each other. And we'd do it well. I want to care for you. Mostly. Not the other way around. I don't want you to think that I would be some neurotic, high-maintenance... I would be neurotic and high maintenance like this all the time. I can be stable for you. I'm dependable as long as I know I have someone to depend on too. I just have a lot of passion, especially about you, and right now I'm scared to lose you. But I can focus on my other passions and prove it to you. Like I said, have all the time you need. Maybe you're right. They cease the conversation having said all that is necessary for the time being. He, has, he asks her if she wants a massage, which she knows he is naturally talented at. She smiles at him from, from his lap and says, sure. She rolls onto her stomach and he readjusts, straddling her legs just below her largest muscles, the gluteus maximus. He rubs her back and neck with his hands, sensing the knots and stress points by feel working them gently at first, then firmly, 
grateful for the task as an opportunity to express his affection without the need for his tongue, lips, or genitals, though she is beginning to moan and squirm at the feel of the massage. She chooses to make it sexual. This time it works. At her invitation, he takes off her clothes, gets off, and walks around the, and walks around the bed to do it, leaving her lying on her stomach. He strips off each article of her clothing, kissing all over her body along the way. He takes, off, takes his off as well and climbs on top of her, entering her before wrapping his arms around her and pulling her onto her side for a slow, tender expression <clears throat> of absolutely genuine lovemaking. Their bodies pair together perfectly. He squeezes tight and moves slow. They are together, completely together, once more. And he savors it, not wanting it to ever end. But as usual, they climax together for the last time. He doesn't know how to take her last comment and responds, I lost my mind? Yeah, you were acting pretty crazy. Wow, he says shocked and shook, insulted and hurt. I was on acid. Do you not remember our talk? What about the sex? He gets mad again, as he is too drunk to be having this conversation in any calm way, but drunk enough to say it like he sees it. God damn it, how's the sex with Mr. What's-his-fucking-name? What is his fucking name? You know what? Never fucking mind. I don't want to know. A goddamn thing or I might kill him. How's the sex with him, though? Don't tell me. God damn it. Fuck. Calm down. I'm pissed. Obviously. Just tell me when it's over, if you ever decide you want to see me again. Fuck. She still had him, even though she was trying to rid herself of him. He wouldn't stop loving her that easily, and they both knew it. He knows he has to ask her one more, once more, <clears throat> excuse me. He knows he needs to ask her one more thing and that he may not like the answer, but he needs to know. When did you start seeing him? Why does it matter? Because it fucking does. You know why. Before or after the last time we fucked. He waits a few moments before hearing her say the word before. The opposite of what he wanted to hear, but probably what he needed to move on. He, can, he convinces himself it's a lie. He sits for a moment, staring at her steely-eyed despite his tears. Fine, then. Goodbye, he says. He hears her say, wait, I just... Before he hangs up, unable to bear looking at her any longer. Once she is gone, he breaks down sobbing, exactly like he did when he was 12 years old, exactly half a lifetime ago. Chapter 10. The Boy and the Boardwalk Man, I didn't think we got that drunk last night, a familiar voice says, bringing the man back from his trance. Maybe you didn't. I drank a whole bottle of whiskey after we went, or after you went to sleep. Passed out right here, where I'm laying now. Merle opens his eyes and squints up at Hayduk, flashing a smart-ass smile before closing his eyes and resting his head back down on his hand. <clears throat> Did you really, though? Hayduk asks. Hell no. Went right to bed. Slept hard. 
I've just been having some strange dreams. Woke up early. Came out here. Just been meditating, I guess you'd call it. He says, still laying down. The elevation will do that to you. I don't think that's it. Been at altitude for a while. You remember your dreams? Sometimes, if I want to. I know what you mean. You want some breakfast? Figure I owe you one. You don't owe me nothing, but I'll take it. What do you got? Elk sausage and chicken eggs from the grocer up in Boulder. Mm-mm-mm, that does sound good. Hearing his stomach rumble, Merle opens his eyes fully, jumps up and spins around and formally greets the man called Hayduke with a firm shake of... <clears throat> excuse me. With a firm shake through the open upper half of the arched gateway, grown over with clematis flowers. Sally is sitting behind him in the shade of the water tanks. I haven't had elk since my last time in Utah. I actually ate such a massive, delicious elk steak, probably a 15-ouncer, that I woke up and vomited a few hours after going to bed. It was just too rich, I guess. My stomach rejected it, which was a waste. It tasted much better going down than it did coming up. I bet, Hayduke says. Try not to get carried away with the sausage then. But I know what you mean. You can only eat so much in a sitting when it comes comes to red meat. <clears throat> Come over here and I'll show you my rig. I've got the coffee ready. Merle exits the garden and follows Hayduke towards the back parking lot where his own camper and truck are. Sally follows <clears throat> with a smile, licking her chops, also thinking about breakfast. Hayduke guides Merle behind the airstream and gestures towards a vintage Toyota Land Cruiser hiding behind it. The truck has a roof rack loaded with ammo boxes and dry bags of gear. Red jerry cans of gas are in carriers welded to the struts of the roof rack on either side of the back end. The rack and struts which support it wrap the Toyota in a sort of exoskeleton and is attached under the body welded to the frame, as well as mounted to the roof rack, middle and rear, completely protecting the body lines of the old truck. The hood and windshield are protect protected by limb risers aircraft-grade cables that run from the front corners of the roof rack to the corners of his beefy steel tube front bumper. The cherry on top is the integrated recovery winch made by Warren. The limb risers, as the name suggests, look like guy lines but serve to keep branches and, limb and limbs off the glass windshield when pushing through brush. It is an extremely capable off-road machine sporting massive 36-inch mud terrain tires and a ring of off-road lights surrounding the roof on all sides. You a rock crawler? Only when I have to be. That's a pretty badass truck. You have it since before the blackout, he inquires, trying to get more background on the so-called mole hunter for no reason other than to satisfy his own curiosity. Yep, bought it with part of my GI Bill after leaving the Corps and fixed it up. Figured I'd need something reliable, given the way things were going. Doesn't get any better than a Land Cruiser. And this here is an 86, the last year with a carburetor. So it was basically EMP-proof, EMP thank God. Just had to replace a few fuses. Yeah, I had, a bun I had a bitch of a time getting this Ford running again. I bet you did. It's too new. Tons of electronic bullshit. That's right. I had a little carbureted dirt bike that survived the blast. I used it to get around until the truck was up and running. Then I sold it 
for silver to a guy who was desperate for transport. Got enough, <clears throat> got a good amount of eagles out of it, bought the camper, and still had a few left over. Funny to think what things became worth. Anything with a running motor was worth more than nearly anything that required a hauler. The bike was fairly beat up and the airstream was nearly immaculate, but it was all relative to need. Sounds like a smart play, says Hayduke. Yeah, but I wish I still had that bike for backup. Oh well, doesn't matter now. Hayduke ignites his pump bottle white gas stove. <clears throat> a mountain safety research whisper light, whose name is a bit misleading given that it sounds like a jet engine when it's fired up but it cooks much much faster than Merle's beer can alcohol stoves. He had seen the Whisperlite model stove before in his college days when he would go backpacking with his classmates. It is a fine piece of gear, serviceable, reliable, and built to last, just like Hayduke's Toyota. <clears throat> Where do you find the white gas? Merle asks. Don't necessarily need white gas, actually. This stuff is hard to come by. That stuff is hard to come by these days. But this baby, it'll burn just about anything. Gasoline, moonshine, 151 rum, anything high enough proof, even diesel. Just have to clean it between uses or at least every once in a while. Luckily, moonshine is easy enough to find. Yes, sir. I try not to drink it. The stuff I have is too high proof to drink anyways. It would need watering down first. Thanks for the warning. He sets a large cast iron skillet on the now red-hot tripod-style camp stove. Quickly, little charred bits stuck to the skillet start crackling. Hayduke takes a flat metal spatula out of the box on the ground next to his folded-down tailgate, which he uses as a cooking surface. He grabs the handle of the skillet and uses the edge of the spatula to scrape the pan and scoop out the charred bits, tossing them over his shoulder. Sally sees this sniffs the ground where they land, and licks them up. There is a percolator sitting on the tailgate, already steaming. Hayduke reaches once more into the box and grabs two tin mugs with handles, handing one to Merle. He grabs the percolator and pours them each a cup of hot, rich coffee. The man smells it and says, best part of waking up. Fuck Folgers, man. This is the good shit, says Hayduke. Where'd you get it? Mexico, but it originally came from Ecuador. I thought trade was shut down from Mexico until recently. Well, not quite. Not if you know the right people. You seem to be more informed than me on these matters. I have a couple of core buddies down there who hook me up occasionally. There are alternatives to cartel-sanctioned trade if you've got connections. Amazing. Friends in low places, eh? Where the whiskey drowns and the beer chases my blues away, sings Hayduke, quoting Garth Brooks. And we've slipped on down to the oasis here, ain't we? Merle says, motioning towards the garden in the motel. Sure did. <clears throat> Too bad we can't stay. Hayduke drops a dozen sausage links into the pan and they begin to sizzle and pop. He turns the stove down to a simmer or as close to one as it can get with the jet engine stove such as this, having the opposite problem of the beer can stove, making it nearly impossible to cook slowly. Too much work to do... <clears throat> excuse me. Too much work to be done, Delalligag, Hayduke says, enticing Merle into a discussion. Is that right? Yep. Problem is, I'm not sure where we're going yet. 
That's where you come in. Like I'm supposed to know. I thought you were the one God spoke to, he says with a bit of disbelief in his voice. He had almost forgotten the meat of their conversation the previous night. Hayduke had him fully convinced the night before when he was half drunk, fully stoned, and thoroughly suggestible. God doesn't really speak to me. He more lights the way, shows me things others don't necessarily see or notice. Where do you feel like going? Where were you planning on going? God guided me or guided you here too, whether you know it or not. Well, I was going back the way you came from, to Tory. Thought, thought about stopping in and seeing some folks I know there. See about setting up a local distribution hub for the podcast here in Wayne County, if they've got the infrastructure for it. Sounds good to me. Good water back in Tory. Didn't get to state last time. Had to go up on Boulder Mountain, then came straight here. Luckily, I made it just in the nick of time, right before you. You were up on Boulder Mountain, huh? Yes, sir. Fishing and scoping the mountain for elk. Figure I may stay in the area come winter. You can get a lot of places from here. Salt Lake, Green River, Grand Junction, Vegas. I was only half kidding when I joked about Vegas. There's lots of work to be done there, I'll tell you. Probably too much. But this wouldn't be the worst place to spend the winter. I'm still not sure I buy it says Merle. Sure you do, Hayduke says, reading his body language, not phased by the false statement of doubt. He could tell the man was already in. He cracks six eggs into the pan with the sausage now taken off, resting on a blue and white speckled enamel plate and a lid over top, keeping them warm as they seep oil and continue to sizzle quietly. The pan is now the perfect temperature and has a good layer of grease for frying eggs. Hayduke cooks them for about 30 seconds on one side, 20 on the other, flipping flipping them rapidly in the same sequence in which he had cracked them. He pulls them off one by one at the perfect instant to maintain a healthy amount of the dark orange yolk, not breaking or burning any, and nice over medium. He pulls out another enamel plate and hands it to Merle, scooping three of the eggs and a few sausage links onto his plate. Hayduke then reaches into the box one last time and pulls out an unopened bottle of Tabasco sauce and two metal forks. Tabasco? You've got to be kidding. Man, you know how to do breakfast right, Hayduke. Yeah, I've got friends in Louisiana as well. One of the few truly family-owned companies of its size still in existence at the time of the blackout. Output is still ramping back up, but the McKinley family is planning on or is planting more peppers each year, trying to keep up with the increasing demand. Since they operate on an island, they were able to keep the looters at bay, protect their equipment, crops, and supplies. Man, if you ever get a chance, you should go down there. Hitch a boat to Avery Island. You'd love it. The gardens are incredible. Since, you apparent, since you're apparently into that kind of thing. They're growing all their own peppers on the island again for the first time since the 60s when demand for the sauce outpaced supply and they had to grow more peppers elsewhere. Now they make as much as they can given the peppers they can grow on the island, but I imagine they may need to expand beyond the island again soon. They essentially have everything else they need to produce the sauce on site, being that the island is a salt dome 
and the only ingredients in Tabasco are peppers, vinegar, and salt. They even aged the stuff in white oak barrels for three years, just like bourbon. It was the first mass-produced hot sauce ever made, and we still love it 160 years later. People miss brands like that. Tabasco, Kraft Macaroni and Cheese, Hidden Valley Ranch Dressing, Oreos, even the crummy brands. It's the familiarity that people want, really. What I would give for a bottle of Buttermilk Ranch right now, I swear. Most of those brands were sold to larger companies and had nobody left who cared enough to pick up the pieces after everything went dark. As corporate types <clears throat> debated if, they would, if there would be any profit in it. Most of them chose to liquidate and sell their facilities to the government for pennies on the dollar. Glad to hear some things are still around, says Merle. Tabasco was always my sauce of choice for breakfast. <clears throat> Merle is impressed with Hayduke's intimate knowledge of the company and its operation, wondering if he might be connected to the family somehow. Hayduke opens the bottle. They both dash a liberal portion of the hot sauce onto their eggs. Hayduke grabs the salt and pepper shakers out of the box and both season their eggs to their preferred levels. Sufficiently cooled after the short history lesson, the eggs and sausage are now perfectly ready to eat. Delicious, nutritious, and better than he had had at any restaurant in the before time. Though hunger is the best spice, and they are certainly both hungry. This hearty breakfast will more than likely hold them over until dinner. Although the man was curious to see what restaurants, if any, might still be open in Torrey. There used to be several. The Rimrock Patio... La Cueva, The Broken Spur, The Saddlery, Capital Burgers, and for groceries, supplies, and oddities, there was the Chuck Wagon General Store. He hoped at least a couple of them might still be open, but figured it was best to resupply here in Hanksville before heading out, just to be safe. With breakfast complete, they decide to split up and collect their personal effects from their respective rooms, planning to load up and roll west on 24 soon agreeing on the earlier the better. The man decides against taking another shower, still feeling clean and wanting to keep moving. He quickly packs his duffel, once more checking that all the valuables are there, in their proper place. He scans the room to be sure he hasn't left anything behind and carries everything to the camper, using the provided wheelie cart to assist in the transportation of his now clean laundry and surprisingly heavy duffel bag. He opens the camper door and puts everything inside where it belongs, with organization being critical to living out of a small space. He fills Sally's bowls and gives them to her outside, where she is waiting patiently for her breakfast after seeing the men eat theirs, though they had let her lick their plates clean. He takes the time to put all the folded clothes into cubbies and drawers built into the walls of the bedroom. Airstream, thank God for quality, he thinks knowing he is using it to its maximum. A Winnebago probably would have fallen apart by now. Campers and RVs of many kinds are now used for permanent housing options, since many of them could no longer be moved under their own power. It was a lucrative service for anyone with a functional truck to purchase, refurbish the interiors, and deliver old campers to new owners, where it would more than likely sit forevermore used as a, not, as a no longer mobile home. With chores done, it is time to say adios to the lady of the hour, Suzanne. When he reaches the office, he finds her waiting 
expectantly with a warm smile. Staying another night, she asks hopefully, but wanting both wanting the business and the pleasant company. No, unfortunately not. Need to move along. Yeah, I heard. Just thought I'd try to talk you out of it, she says, winking and smiling at him. Well, you know, Suzanne, if I come back through here on my way home, I'll be staying. That's a promise. Not too many other options in this two-horse town, she hands <clears throat> she hands him his deposit coins as promised, and he hands her the room key. Checkout complete. Well, even if there were, I'd still choose the Whispering Sands every time. You'd better. You travel safe now, Merle. Don't let Mr. Hayduke get you into any trouble. He says y'all are sticking together for a bit. Can't tell if that's a good idea or if it spells disaster, but I hope you'll at least enjoy some company on the road for a while. It can be a lonely life out there. Then again, it can be here too. I'll do my best to keep him reined in. Stay sweet, Lady Suzanne. Travel safe and come back to see me sometime. She blows him a kiss on his way out the door, which he pretends to grab out of the air and slap to his ass, making one final inappropriate joke, getting the old lady to smile and giggle. He finally waves a cordial and polite goodbye through the window as he walks off. The two vehicles begin rolling down Highway 24, stopping briefly at the Bull Mountain Market, named after the small mountain in the Henrys that bears a striking resemblance to a bison with horns. After loading up on beer, cured meats, cheeses, and other basic essentials, the two drive on, passing through various epochs of geology along the way, going deeper and further back in time, marked by layers of sedimentary rock. They leave behind the Burr Desert, Hanksville, and the Dirty Devil River. They drive into the area leading up to the water pocket fold, following alongside the Fremont River, with the Henry Mountains off their left shoulder to the south. Mount Ellen can be seen, the tallest of all the Henrys, at 11,527 feet above sea level. The man remembers climbing the mountain multiple times, seeing the entirety of Wayne County and beyond, all the way to the Kaibab Plateau and the Grand Canyon over 150 miles away as the crow flies, and much further by road. There is rarely a direct route to get anywhere in this territory. He wonders if you could have seen the lights from Vegas on a clear night from up on Mount Ellen, never having had the chance to try back in the world that was, lit up in its former excess of faux glory. He wouldn't care to be up there at night, however, knowing that the winds blow at 50 to 60 miles an hour, and even in the dead of summer a man could die of exposure up there, with not a stitch of shelter to be found near the summit, as it is well above the tree line, with too little oxygen to support timber species, only grasses and small scrubby shrubs. Before the blackout, this was one of the darkest places in the lower 48, as folks used to say. During the reign of the National Park Service, it was designated as a platinum-level dark sky park, which the man always found to be a silly way of saying very dark. How could anyone be so arrogant as to rate the night sky on a bronze, silver, gold, platinum scale was beyond him. He preferred to simply say the stars are incredible out here. The skies above Wayne County almost contained more light than dark with the ever-present arm of the Milky Way stretching above and beyond and home to some spectacular meteor shower displays. It is <clears throat> truly a place un unlike any other he had experienced before or since. 
He lived here at the ripe age of 22, and he is now in his mid-30s, but still feels young for the most part. The highway begins to curve more severely the deeper they get into Capital Reef country, part of Abbey's lands, as the great author named Ed self-proclaimed them half a century earlier. Now that he is gone, buried in an unmarked grave somewhere in the southwest, these lands might now be claimed by anyone. They drive through rolling dunes of bentonite clay, a place that, <clears throat> with a feeling similar to that of the surface of Mars or some other foreign planet, with contrasting layers of creams, purples, tans, and reds, and not a stitch of vegetation anywhere to be seen. A sign off to the right, which used to house... <clears throat> a map of the area is now graffitied over with word with the words if you ain't local leave now spray painted in bold letters a rough washboard road to the left goes south between the henrys and the water pocket fold through the <clears throat> through the grand and barren valley carved out of the backside of the fold by the now modest sandy creek and leading to a nowhere place called notum which only a couple of ranchers still call home. And beyond that, to the small but still living town of Bullfrog, through which people would access the shores of Lake Powell. The paved road to Bullfrog from Hanksville is much smoother <clears throat> with its blacktop surface, so almost nobody drives this road of dirt and gravel for fear of flash floods, rock falls, sticky mud holes, <clears throat> and sticky mud holes that could get even the most capable vehicles into trouble as there is no good anchor point to winch from many had gotten stuck down there for days at a time without a single vehicle coming by to render aid it is a road on which it is best to abide by the buddy system but it is not these buddies road today their road is still the winding highway 24 now getting into the deeper canyons leading up to the heart of capital reef fruta the previously mentioned place in which people had lived on and off for millennia. They are deep inside the water pocket fold, a thoroughly unique monocline where the layers of the earth actually folded upon themselves instead of cleaving or shearing, with the outer side of the fold now, after exposure to millions of years of erosion, showing no less than 17 unique geological layers, the most visible rock layers of any of the former national parks, including the Grand Canyon. This place, possibly more than any other, is a geologist's wet dream, as well as an archaeologist's and paleontologist's. Tons of dinosaur and other fossils, petrified wood, unique minerals, and aggregate rocks make up this land of infinite mystery, with still undiscovered indigenous dwellings, cultural sites, and petroglyphs. It was almost too much for any one person to look at in a lifetime, changing constantly as the vehicles rolled and glided down the insane road, now with towering walls of rock close in on both sides, extending hundreds, then over a thousand feet up, over, up overhead, nearly blocking out two-thirds of the sky and leaving only enough room for the highway and the Fremont River, which overlap at certain tight squeezes. The canyon begins to feel cool and comfortable, still shaded in most places from the late morning sun as they drove on <clears throat> as they drive on through the deepest section of the Fremont Gorge. Finally, after passing a few more graffiti-covered signs denoting old trails and parking areas, 
The sky opens back up a bit, and on the right-hand side is the easternmost of all the Fruta orchards, called the Max Kruger. It, like all of the others, was ironically named in honor and memory of the man or family who had owned the orchard before it was forcefully commandeered by the national parks. Merle sees the Holt and Valentine or Tyne Euler orchards on the left, full of cherries and apricots. He had known an Euler in his time there, by the name of Roger, who worked for the maintenance division mowing grass in the orchards. He was Tyne Euler's nephew, or great-nephew, one of the two. The man can't remember. Roger was a Jack Mormon, meaning he wasn't really a Mormon any longer because he drank, akin to the jerked-over Amish back in the, middle, back in the Midwest. Roger and Merle would have long chats in the orchards, distracting each other from their duties for longer than any private sector job would have allowed. They would also drink together occasionally after work or on the weekends at the bar in town. Merle remembers Roger giving him some tidbits of his Utah country wisdom along the way. One time, Merle was drinking a nice craft beer at the saddlery when Roger asked, Just what in the hell are you drinking? in his uniquely Wayne County dialect. Oh, just some Deschutes Porter. It's pretty good. Look here, son. Roger points to his Coors Banquet in the squatted bottle, the shape of an old-style iodine bottle, or the type they use to sell liquid morphine, amphetamines, or various other drugs in over-the-counter. Back in the good old days, make morphine freely available and cheap, and the opioid problem is over, the man thought once. Roger goes on. Coors, man. Rocky Mountain Spring Water. He was speaking even slower than usual, for effect. It don't get no better, Roger shouts, even though the man is sitting right next to him. Well, shit, Roger. I'm sold, he says, ordering a banquet beer from the bartender. Roger's family had lived in Wayne County for nearly 200 years and rarely left for vacations or any other reason other than the occasional supply run to Grand Junction or Richfield. Many things were and still are unavailable in Wayne County, which housed only one small supermarket and a single do-it-best hardware store, both in Loa. Any Any specialty items or clothes other than secondhand had to be ordered for delivery or traveled or traveled for in no less than a three-hour trip, one way. Roger says, You know, son, you could marry more money in 15 minutes than you could make in a lifetime. Is that what you did, Roger? I didn't realize Luana was a wealthy woman. Hell no, she ain't. That's why I'm telling you to do it. Don't make the same mistakes I made. Marry up, young man, marry up. I'll work on that, Roger. Thanks for the tip. At Merle's request as the lead, <coughs> excuse me. At Merle's request as the lead vehicle, using his turn signal for the first time in ages to get Hayduke's attention, they pull off to the right-hand shoulder. Hayduke stops and parks behind him in the blacktop parking area off the road, wondering what the reason is for this unscheduled stop. It is far too early to need a restroom break, they having only driven 30 minutes so far but there is something the man wants to look at and to show Hey Duke. He wants to show off Capitol Reef for a bit, being a formerly trained tour guide and knowing all the best sites along this highway. 
This was the famous petroglyph panel along the Fremont River, just a hair east of Fruta, where the former NPS HQ lay another mile ahead. They step from their vehicles and rally at the railing of a boardwalk, which heads from the parking lot area to the viewing deck, still in relatively good shape. To Merle's partial surprise, the deck had not been torn apart and used for the building materials, but he is glad it hadn't been. They both walk down the boardwalk under the canopy of old cottonwood and pecan trees to its end and look up at an array of ancient artwork spread out in front of them. No less than a hundred unique individual petroglyphs had been etched into the stone and displayed a variety of shapes, sizes, styles, patterns, and compositional elements. One could remain in this spot all day and keep seeing something new. Amazing, says Hey Duke in a state of bewilderment. He had not seen, or <clears throat> excuse me, he had seen petroglyphs before, but never quite so many in one place. It seems to mark a certain significance of the location. Hayduke figures to himself, or perhaps it was just convenient for the ancient artists, with, with it being nestled in the bosom of their winter home of Fruta. Isn't it? I love this spot. Didn't you come right past here on your way from Boulder to Hanksville? Negative. I took the Burr Trail switchbacks down to the Notum Bullfrog Road we just passed. Came up that way. Didn't come through here at all. That's a rough road. Yeah, but it was dry at least. You see anything or anyone? I'm just up in Boulder. That makes sense. People up there are a resilient bunch. Decent ground for growing food, too. Did you see if the grill and lodge is still open? Hell's backbone? Funny you mention it. I actually killed the manager. You what? Killed. The manager of Hell's Backbone Grill. She was one bad cookie. That little community is way better off without her. What'd she do? Oh, she was keeping logs and writing reports for the Shadow Mormon government up in Salt Lake City, as well as sharing information with the governments on the east and west coasts when the price was right. She had been responsible for no fewer than three disappearances in the last two years calling in the black baggers to snatch people from their homes or the lodge in the middle of the night. The governments east, west, and north of here would all send her mugshots and files on anyone deemed a threat to reunification or to the LDS church, which is ironic because the two are in direct opposition to each other. But she was helping both sides. The Mormons don't want reunification, only to build the state of Deseret. She had no loyalty either way. She was simply collecting bounties any chance she could get, ratting on her own neighbors, employees, and patrons. Shit, you serious? So that's what you were actually doing up on Boulder Mountain? You weren't just fishing and glassing for elk? You were on a mole hunt? Merle is stunned. There is a face he could remember, but isn't sure if she was the owner or the manager. He wondered if he might have met the woman in question over 15 years ago, thinking it's possible he may have shook her hand and said the food was incredible. Hell's Backbone Grill is a place famous for being something of a five-star restaurant in the middle of bumfuck Egypt. A fitting description for Wayne County. She was bad, huh? Yep, sweet on the surface, but God showed me her true form. 
She looked like a raven or a crow with glossy black feathers and a long beak and red eyes. But she spoke normally and walked like a person. I knew she was bad right away. I used to be surprised when I would see them, but now it doesn't shock me so much. After I killed her, I searched her living quarters and found notebooks, reports, letters, files, and a satellite phone, etc. I can show you proof if you'd like. No, I don't need to see anything, Merle says. As his mood changes, feeling a slight tingle on the back of his neck, hairs standing up saying danger. The feeling is not because of Hayduke's tale, despite the shocking admission to quasi-murder. Instead, he feels something telling him to trust this man, but not this place. Something isn't right here. We should... Just then, a gunshot rings out from underneath the boardwalk, blowing a large caliber hole in the plank of wood directly between Hayduke's feet, bullet narrowly whizzing past his nose. He feels the wind wake of it on its skin. Without hesitation, his training taking over, Hayduke jumps back a step before another round splinters through another board. He draws his weapon from his leg holster, a Sig Sauer M17, the standard-issued sidearm for the Marines at his time of military service. He fires six rounds into the deck boards, spreading them around a little, trying to estimate where the target might be. Quick on his feet, Merle also springs into action, pulling out his Glock and vaulting over the railing of the boardwalk as Hayduke continues to dance around the deck, firing six more rounds in a few seconds. Duke sees what the other man is doing from the corner of his eye, but remains trained on the area of the invisible target hiding underneath the boardwalk, trying to provide him covering fire. Merle lands on the uneven rocks below the boardwalk, but manages to, manages <clears throat> to stay on his feet before dropping flat on his stomach with his pistol extended, getting the drop on the hidden, hidden would-be assassin. Drop it, motherfucker, or I'll drop you. Just fucking shoot him, Merle, shouts Hayduke, impatiently shooting four more rounds into the deck at random, leaving him with only one in the chamber. He quickly swaps mags with smooth, expert pre precision. No, 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 please don't. I'm sorry. I didn't, I don't want to die. Please, we just wanted your truck. The hidden attacker lets out a painful moan, then continues pleading with the two men. Quieter now. Please, please don't kill me. He cries out from the darkness under the boardwalk. He sounds genuinely remorseful, scared, and in pain, groaning and moaning with a cracking, boyish voice. I think you got him, Duke. Hey, shit for brains. Unload and toss your piece very slowly, and don't forget the one in the chamber. Make one move I don't like and you're toast. He hears the sound of a magazine being ejected and the slide being pulled. A single shell hits an unseen rock, making a slight ping sound. All right, good. You fucking shithead. Now, if, now I need you to crawl out of there, nice and slow, with your hands where I can see them. And if you've got another weapon, you'd better tell me about it right fucking now and drop it before you come out. I swear to God, we'll blow you away. The man is surprised by his own threatening words and the ease with which he spoke them. He is not the type to say things like this, or at least he hadn't thought so. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Please, please don't kill me. I have a knife, that's all. I want to hear it drop. A metal clang could be heard. All right, good. Now come out, towards me, slowly. 
The silhouette of the man could be seen rolling onto his belly, army crawling over. A face emerged from the shadows, a young, blonde, Mormon-looking boy, around 15 or 16 years old, and very skinny, emerges, with blood running down his right arm, using his left to crawl. Please help me, the boy says. You motherfucker, tell me why we shouldn't kill you right here, shouts Hayduke from above, still on the boardwalk, now pointing his pistol over the railing at the boy laying in the mess of rocks directly below, bleeding on the sand. My, my mother would be heartbroken. Fuck your mother, you little piece of shit. You lost the right to live, shooting at us. You almost killed me, asshole. Hayduke, calm yourself. Let me talk to this asshole for a second, and maybe then you can kill him. But let's see what he knows. All right, you're the boss. Let's see if this fucking punk has anything of value to tell us. Otherwise, his ass is grass. The two men fall naturally into a good cop, bad cop dynamic. Hayduke is now intentionally playing up the bad cop role, knowing the kid no longer uh, poses much of a real threat, if any, unless he is hiding a hand grenade or another gun. Hayduke keeps his M17 aimed directly at the boy's chest. You got him, Duke? Yeah, I got him. He makes one move I don't like, and he'll have another hole to breathe through. You hear me, boy? Please, please, don't kill me. I never wanted to shoot anybody. I'm just scared. He pleads, pulling himself into a seated position with with his one good arm, leaning his back against a boulder, moving extra slowly as to not irritate the clearly dangerous man who had already shot him once. Blood is flowing steadily down his arm and congealing in the dry sand, making it redder. He takes his good arm and covers his face, about to cry. Merle stands up while Hayduke makes his threats. He walks over to the boy, securing his own weapon back in its holster, checking the boy's wounds. Checking the boy's wound. Just what in the actual fuck are you doing, Merle? Hayduke asks, playing his role knowing that they will not let the boy die if they can help it. He is clearly just a scared boy doing someone else's bidding. God is not asking Hayduke to kill this one, though the boy doesn't need to know that. Keep him scared. Keep him talking, Hayduke thinks to himself. Just looking, just looking, Duke. Curious if the dumb fuck is going to live another five minutes or not. The boy cringes at these words and begins to sob, terrified at the idea of losing his so far short-lived life, wanting it to continue at least long enough to lose his virginity. Please, I'll, I'll tell you everything. Just help me. Can you please stop the bleeding? Merle crouches in front of the boy, meeting him at eye level, and says, Sure could. Looks through and through. Bullet entered the bicep and exited the tricep, and it looks like it missed your bone, you lucky little motherfucker. But it's probably nicked a serious artery. You're bleeding pretty good. Now I... Now, last I know, there's a medical clinic in Bicknell. Is that still open? The boy nods in the affirmative. Closest major hospital is all the way in Richfield, some 90 minutes away. The boy nods again. That's a long way to go either way, but we can keep you from bleeding out. You tell us something we ought to know right now, and we'll bandage you up and take you to the clinic. Get you patched up right and tight. Get you some new blood even. You're probably going to need it. You know your blood type, boy? Better tell me now in case you pass out. A.B. positive, he says, looking and feeling faint at the thought of death. 
Merle thinks he <clears throat> thinks he is still carrying plenty of blood to stay conscious if he keeps his cool. He slaps the boy hard in the face, trying to keep him from going into a state of shock, which is often more psychological than physical. <clears throat> he had seen this happen before in the same area when he was on a search and rescue with the rangers he knew in the park, which he had done more than a few times in his time here before. They once came upon a man, delirious and panicking, but absolutely fine in a physical sense. He had simply gotten lost, a little dehydrated, and slightly low on blood sugar, but had nearly wandered off a cliff in his state of dizzied exasperation. Another man, he remembers, quite the opposite, had simply slipped and fallen on the trail and couldn't walk as a result. He showed no immediate signs of pain or discomfort, but answered with a 9 out of 10 on the pain scale when questioned. Nobody could believe he was in that much pain until hearing back from the clinic that the x-ray had shown a broken femur, the largest bone in the body and one of the most painful things anyone can experience. It seems to Merle that uh, psychological shock was a matter of mindset, fortitude, and a choice on the part of the person to stop fighting for survival to give into the pain or panic entirely, letting the shock come in as a coping mechanism. He isn't ready to let this boy do it. He slaps him one more time, hard, getting the boy back to a level of semi-coherent responsiveness. Who else is out there? Is there another ambush ahead? He knows this teenager cannot be working alone, and he, and had heard him say we when begging Hey Duke and Merle to help him. The plan was for me to follow you on my dirt bike after you passed and block you from the rear with my pistol drawn. There's a group ahead with road spikes, my paw and brothers. Please don't hurt them. Shut the fuck up and keep talking, demands Hayduke paradoxically. Sorry, sorry, please. They were going to throw the spikes out to disable your lead vehicle so we could steal the Toyota and leave you both stranded. Figured you'd survive okay with your camper. How'd you know we were coming? Merle asks impatiently. Word came, or word of you two came in from Hanksville. We were waiting for you. We knew you were coming. We just wanted that Toyota. The boy starts to trail off again. So Merle slaps him once more, harder yet, leaving a bright red handprint on the boy's cheek. Where? Where are they waiting? He asks desperately, shaking the boy to keep him awake. Sulphur Creek. The boy passes out, but the information checks out in Merle's mind. It makes perfect sense. The creek is an excellent place to hide down the bank and under the bridge, a logical place to set an ambush. He gives the boy another shake, but sees his eyes roll deep into the back of his head through slightly opened eyelids. He checks the boy's breathing with his index finger under, under his nose, confirming he's still alive. You have anything <clears throat> to use for a tourniquet? Maybe some quick clot, asks Merle, feeling the pressure of time to keep this boy alive, feeling partially responsible for the youngster despite everything. Yeah, in the truck. Hayduke, now convinced the boy was genuinely passed out and disarmed, holsters his weapon and shouts, keep a close eye on him, could be a faker, as he runs for his med kit. He hurries it <clears throat> over to the boy and takes out an Israeli battle dressing and gauze, lots of gauze. He doesn't have any quick clot. 
He grabs an old Gatorade bottle of moonshine from the bag and pops the nozzle open, squirting a generous amount of the high-proof spirit on the boy's arm, being sure to hit both sides of the wound before spraying some on his own hands and rubbing it around. He packs both sides of the, of the arm with copious amounts of wadded-up sterile gauze and wraps the battle dressing as tight as he can, constricting the blood flow significantly but probably not stopping it completely. He wonders if he should have used some sandy soil as makeshift quick, quick clot, <clears throat> but figured the wound was too deep and would be impossibly difficult to clean out at the clinic, which is only about 10 miles away. He knows enough and has seen enough to realize that the blood, if the blood loss doesn't get you, an infection most certainly can. Hayduke shoulders his medical backpack and says, grab his legs. I've got his head. Merle grabs the boy's legs, opening them wide enough and grabbing the crook of each knee, turning away from the boy's head as to face the same direction as Hayduke for the precarious, though short trek through the rock rock slide area full of jagged boulders of all sizes, making it rather challenging to carry the dead weight in tandem. They're both glad for the boy's skinniness, but, but even still, it is cumbersome and awkward going. You know what? Fuck this. Lay him back down, says Hayduke. Merle complies. In one swift motion, Hayduke takes off his med kit, throws it to Merle, and decides to pick the boy up and carry him on his own. He spins the boy around, squats, and tosses him over his shoulder, the way soldiers are known to carry each other out of battle, at least in the movies. This made the whole ordeal less awkward, being able to take more careful steps over the boulders, not being pulled along by Merle from the front. You got him? asks Merle. Yep, this boy's nothing but a string bean. Now, how far is this Sulphur Creek Bridge? asks Hayduke, stepping carefully, listening. Uh, about a mile, maybe less. You'll see an old schoolhouse on the right, and then some houses and a road to the left, right before the old NPS Visitor Center. The bridge is immediately after the VC. The road heads south towards the campgrounds, housing area, and the VC parking lot, about one or 200 feet from in front of the bridge. All right, he says, as they step carefully through the boulders, Merle trying to scout the easiest route ahead. So here's what we're going to do. Chapter 11. Stability and Desperation For months and months, he pines after her wantingly, despite her choosing not to want him back. He begins to think, maybe men fall in love and women choose to love, or choose not to. This theory seemed to jive with his experience. Then again, maybe it was just her. He begins writing, hoping she may eventually want to read some of it, but eventually decides he must move on, because if he doesn't, she will likely never want him again. In order to win her back, he has to prove that he doesn't need her. He has to become some kind of success, to make some kind of splash, hoping to prove he is better than the others and isn't all talk. He sets out to improve himself, build his business, and be a better man, more attractive and stable. Unfortunately, this doesn't go according to plan. For nearly two years, he drinks himself stupid and smokes himself stupider nearly every day, subconsciously trying to forget, but doesn't. He also can't figure why it is so difficult for him to move on. Perhaps, he thinks, the acid didn't help. The stronger the connection, the harder the separation. 
Their time together had been powerful under the influence of that strange chemical, liquid love, some call it, that he doesn't really want to forget, but simultaneously hates to remember. Don't fall in love on acid ever again. Too painful, he tells himself. Eventually, he gets himself back on track, finally growing the business he has been working on for years and trying new creative endeavors. He tries going on dates with other beautiful women, but rarely, if ever, goes on a second date. None were quite as interesting, as smart, or as attractive to him. None of them smell like her, walk like her, or speak to him as directly as she did. Something he appreciated even when it hurt. Chapter 12. Strategy. You go back and get the kids' weapons and I'll load them up. Meet me back here on the double. On Hayduke's instructions, Merle runs back to retrieve the boys' weapons before getting any more of the plan, being careful not to roll an ankle on the jagged rocks and thinking, don't become another victim, which he had been taught in wilderness survival first aid and search and rescue training in the time before. He crawls under the boardwalk and picks up the boys' K-bar knife, 1911 pistol, and the magazine. He does a quick scan for the 45 caliber bullet which had been ejected. He doesn't see it at first glance in the relative darkness and says, fuck it, returning to the vehicles as quickly as he can, knowing that moments matter. Hey Duke is laying the boy across the hood of the Toyota, zip-tying his wrists to the roof rack and feet to the front bumper, splaying him out like a starfish. Jesus Christ, Hey Duke, Merle shouts. Don't worry, it's just for effect. The boy might get a bit toasty, but there, but it won't, but it won't last long. Do you think they heard the gunshots? Merle thinks hard about the question for a moment. My gut tells me no. They're a ways, <clears throat> they're up a ways, past a few more bends in the canyon. Sound tends to reverberate upwards in these canyons, not sideways. Plus, they're hiding in, they're hiding next to the creek. I bet all they can hear is the water. The man's knowledge of this area is proving to be an invaluable asset. He is intimately knowledgeable about this particular area, the zone immediately around Fruta, as he would hike <clears throat> as he would hike it on his days off work, not wanting to burn gas money from his meager internship stipend of $160 a week, which wasn't worth much even before the global recession leading up to the great blackout. He had hiked and driven this road countless times and had worked in the orchards between their current location and the would-be saboteurs. Even now, a decade and a half since being here, he still knows every inch of the road and damn near every tree in the orchards, at least those of which <clears throat> hadn't died or been planted since. He possesses a remarkably accurate mental map of much of the park, if not most of it. Hayduke figures even if they had heard, the plan remains the same. All right, then we ought to have the element of surprise on our side. <clears throat> I'll bet. Those fuckers don't know what they've gotten themselves into, Hayduke says with a slight touch of glee. While Merle is starting to trust this other man, he can also recognize that Hayduke might be a bit of an action junkie. He seems to relish in this excitement, despite nearly having his head blown off only a couple of minutes prior, acting more awake than ever. Hayduke continues, If this kid has any chance of living, and I'd like to see that he does, given the fact that I was the one to put a bullet through him, 
I feel somewhat responsible. I want you to do exactly what we exactly what I say. I'm going to pull around you so they can see the kid first. Since they were expecting you first, this will cause them to hesitate. They don't want to spike the Toyota. Not not that I'll give them the chance. We're going to drive nice and slow, and when we get to the left-hand turn you mentioned before the bridge, I want you to swing out wide to the right and then hard to the left. Try to block both roads with the truck and camper, if you can. Be on the lookout for an L-shaped ambush coming in from from the the southern road. I'm not sure these guys are that smart, but we ought to be careful nonetheless. I'll stop and get a couple dozen yards or so short of the bridge. You've got a long gun? Yep, an AK. Excellent. As soon as you park, take cover behind the the bed of your truck at the rear tire. I don't want them to shoot your legs out. Tires can be replaced, but legs can't. The Marines taught me that. I need you to have that AK ready to rock ASAP. Don't let these fuckers get a shot off at me or at you. If if they aren't total pros, they will be confused. They'll see their boy strapped to the hood and they won't know what to do. I doubt they'll fire as long as I stay inside the vehicle, using the boy as a shield. I'll be ready to spring out if necessary, but if all goes well, all I'm going to have to do is talk. I need you to be my eyes and my gun. If anyone makes a move without me asking them to, you put them down, fast and mercilessly. Understood? Understood. And scan the whole fucking area. I don't want anyone sneaking up on us from behind. Sounds like that was this kid's job, but you can never be too sure. Understood? Understood. Ever kill anyone? Once. Think you could do it again? If I have to. Good enough for me. Hopefully it won't come to that, so I do the talking, you just stay frosty. Remember, we didn't start this. They did. We're going to end it. That's it. Understood? Sounds a little half-cocked to me, says Merle, uncertainly. Oh, don't worry, it's fully cocked. Keep it simple, stupid. If they give half a shit about this kid, we'll be fine. And if they don't, I've got a contingency plan for that too. Just check down the road, into the park, and scan to the right side of the road as well. Lots of places to hide around here, I figure. That's a fair assumption. There's boulders and gullies all over. People could be anywhere. Better use that silver tongue of yours quick before anyone gets an itchy trigger finger. I copy. Ready Ready to disarm and run off a bunch of rednecks? All right, you crazy son of a bitch. Show me how the sausage gets made. Just follow me. Not too close. You need to give you need to make that big turn, remember. Block both roads, at least mostly. Give yourself cover on two sides. If someone ends up being on your open side, dive under the truck. Parking is the easy part. I've got that covered. Just try not to make me kill anybody, okay? I'll keep my head on a swivel. Fair enough. I'll do my very best. Hayduke says, smiling wild-eyed and half-crazed ready for battle. He is reloading his empty magazine with 9mm cartridges, retrieved from the boardwalk where he ejected it before he went for the med kit. He goes to his truck and retrieves a vest with bulletproof plates on the front and back, slipping it over his bulky frame and tightening the straps. Hayduke then swings the spare tire out of the way, opens the back glass of his Land Cruiser, and rummages around in a large plastic tote, pulling out a small wooden ammo ammo crate, a little larger than a telephone book, with a lock and latch. 
He carries it to the front seat of the Toyota, placing it on the footwell of the passenger side, unlocking it. Merle grabs the AK from behind the bench seat of his Ford, pulls the bolt back an inch, checking that there is a round in the chamber, releasing it and sliding the rifle around him, or slinging the rifle around himself. Enough chit-chat, says Hey Duke. Let's roll. One more thing, says Merle. What about the dirt bike? That's right. Let's take it. Good thinking. We don't want any of them following us. They do a quick scan of the area around the boardwalk and spot the bright green plastics of a little 75cc two-stroke dirt bike obscured in the bushes. Not road legal in the times of registration and insurance, but usable on the roads now. Merle pulls it from the bushes and wheels it over to the Ford, handing the bars to Hayduke. Merle quickly drops the tailgate, lifts lifts and tosses a few bags and boxes toward the cab hastily, and together the two lift and place, place the bike in the back of the bed, upright against the tailgate, closing it. It fits like a glove, small enough to be placed sideways in the massive 8-by-5-foot truck bed. All right, time to go. Precious moments were being spent. More precious to the kid than to the men, but nobody wants to die today, and the two men have no choice but to cover their bases. All right, stay alert and stay cool, concludes Hey Duke as they get behind the wheels of their vehicles and roll on towards danger. Chapter 13, Darkness. He sits around a wrought iron table on a wrought iron chair with some regulars from the bullpen outside the front side of the bar, watching the comings and goings of the city from the sidewalk. They are drinking beer and passing a joint around the table not caring that it's still technically illegal in the state of Indiana. Marion County no longer prosecutes possession charges as there are too many other more heinous crimes to worry about. Lord Joe, Missy and Cindy, Jim and Maggie, Old George, as opposed to Grumpy George from the party at Allentown, Louie, Rob, and Matt Wheeler. Everyone is talking about this and that and some things and a whole lot of nothing. Did you hear about this and that and such and such and so and so? And did you hear what she said to he and what he sent to she and what so and so said to such and such last Saturday at Allen's? Well, I was at Allen's and I didn't hear, see, touch, smell, or taste anything out of place. No drama as far as I noticed. But supposedly so and so said da 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 to such and such about this and that and yada yada and blah 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 and so and so and so on. He doesn't really care to listen, as it was all kind of silly, in his opinion. I was at that party, and all I know is, I had a blast. Whatever drama there was, I must have missed it. I had such a good, such a damn good time, nothing could have bothered me that night. His food comes out, a hot ham and Swiss with a cup of chili, not too shabby. He, is asked, he, a, <clears throat> he asked for the chili to come with onions, jalapenos, and cheese, and it did. Not that the sandwich doesn't already have enough cheese on it. He digs in, turning, tuning out most of the conversation around him, even though people are trying to get his attention about this and that and such and such and so and so, the usual gossip. He keeps eating. He is too hungry to care about anything else until he finishes. He had only a few strips of bacon in the morning and was a bit stressed, not having much money, food, or income, with many debts and bills, none of None paid in full. 
He had forgotten it all over the weekend, going to Allentown and being hung over after the fact, not caring about the pressures of modern society then. But bills are now due, overdue in fact, and yet nothing is done. He has a job tomorrow, a big one, <clears throat> that he is fairly sure he is ready for, a pergola installation. Not terribly difficult, but not altogether easy for one man by himself. He simply didn't want to share the money, even though he has people to call who would work for a reasonable rate. It would be good money for him, if he does it right. He needs to keep whatever he can earn, not pay someone else to do half of what he can do better on his own. He hopes he hadn't underbid the job, but either way, stressed or not, he is having a hard time caring, <clears throat> caring about the money except for the stress of not having quite enough of it, though he doesn't need much. All he needs is enough for beer, weed, cigarettes, food, weed, bills, rent, weed, beer, and the occasional road trip. It all adds up, and he is too busy writing and playing to make enough money to keep playing and writing, drinking and smoking. He mostly just wanted to build something beautiful and strong, something that might last. He hears Maggie say something about Whitley's. Y'all go last Sunday, he asks, between a bite of the sandwich and a spoonful of chili, brought back into the larger conversation by his interest in the fried chicken across town, which he has yet to taste. Oh yes, Maggie says, and Laura Joe came with us. Man, you should have seen it. Ha! Laura Joe was like a kid in a candy store. People didn't know what to think of her. Ha! Hollers Jim, knowing Laura Joe isn't listening to a single word of what he is saying, as she is talking to Missy and Cindy about so-and-so and such-and-such and this and that. What? <clears throat> Was it that good or what? I guess she'd never been. Oh, man, says Jim. She walked in and stole the whole damn show. The show that never was, that is. The whole restaurant was looking at us. She was dancing all around and getting all excited, all worked up. The way she gets, you know. She ordered the chicken dinner. It came with two drumsticks, mashed potatoes, gravy, and green beans. Ate it all and went back for more green beans. Ha! She was a hollering and a whooping the whole time about how good them green beans and the chicken was. I'm telling you, man, she stole the whole damn show. It was hilarious. I can imagine. What'd y'all eat? I want to try this place. You go every Sunday, right? Asked Wheeler. Welp, I think we ought to. I would. He looks at Maggie, who's been pulled into another conversation, not bothering to get her attention. If she'd let me, I'd go every damn Sunday. I always get a wing, a breast, and a thigh. Told the gal behind the counter I was eating half a woman. Ha! Jim and Wheeler laughed at this together both finding it equally amusing, despite it being Matt's first time hearing it and Jim's hundredth time telling it. It was still funny as hell to the both of them. I've eaten more fried chicken, he says, drawing out the joke, than any other white boy ever could or should. They laugh at the harmless joke, by any sane person's standards, but unfortunately now would be quite offensive to some. Jim continues, Every time I go there, I think about my grandma's cooking. Sunday nights when I was a kid, every week, everyone going to grandma's, and she'd make us cornbread, green beans, mashed taters, and eat, <coughs> and, he pauses, fried chicken. The two men laughed together. I want to go with y'all sometime soon. Let me know next time. 
I could use something like Grandma used to make, says Matt. Sure thing, Jim says. They both drink from their beers and light another cigarette. You know what I want? <clears throat> you know what I hear? You don't buy these, says Wheeler, holding up his beer. You just rent them. Ain't that the truth? The older I get, the more I know it. Waking up in the middle of the night and shit to take a piss and shit more than once? I ever tell you about the time that I put my leg on backwards? Thinking so, but tell it again. Sounds like a good'un. Well, we was all out here one night drinking and smoking and hanging out and shit, and me and Maggie decided after a couple buckets of beers to head on home. Well, we lay down and go to bed, maybe a touch drunker than normal, and I wake up to take a leak a few hours later. Well, I'll be damned if I didn't walk all the way to the bathroom with my leg on backwards and didn't quite notice till I got there and turned the lights on. Couldn't tell, tell whether it was me that was backwards or my leg. I've been fucked up before, but that night, damn, Jim says, drawing out the final word once more for comedic effect, getting Matt to laugh with ease. Jim and Maggie had been, on a motor, been in a motorcycle accident at some point in the past, not terribly long ago, a few years before meeting Matt Wheeler. Maggie was fine, just banged up and bruised, but Jim suffered from a severe leg injury with a crushed foot, tibia, and fibula. The whole lower leg smashed. Neither of them had a helmet on. Both were lucky. The doctors had told Jim they could save his leg, only to end up amputating his foot, then part of the lower leg eventually, and then more and more yet over the course of two years and four surgeries. Finally, it seemed as though they had cut enough of Jim's leg off to tally up the final bill and send him on his way with his brand new high-tech carbon fiber prosthetic limb. He never complains about it, but will tell anyone who asks. He and Maggie still ride occasionally, or they did last year, but not yet this summer, which is nearly over. Jim wears a long ponytail and sports Harley Davidson t-shirts almost exclusively. Maggie is more fashionable and very cute for an aging woman, magnanimous and rarely negative, but not to be fucked around with as she has a sharp tongue when properly provoked. My leg on! Backwards! Can you imagine it? He asks, and they both laugh and cough from all the weed and cigarettes. Well, I can, and I can't, if you catch my meaning, he replies. I tell you, taking a piss at night just ain't what it used to be, having to put my leg on and shit, make, making sure it's on straight and whatnot, but that's all right. Well, Jim, I'm just glad you're here. They both knew what that meant without going any further. Not only had Jim and Maggie survived the accident, and everyone was glad of that, but Jim is currently under treatment for cancer, and so is Missy at the other end of the table. It isn't something that comes up terribly often at the bar, but everybody knows and cares, asking for updates from those in the know, without having to necessarily ask the person in question. Everybody wants to keep it positive at the bullpen, but mostly the man only means to say, he is glad that Jim and Maggie are here tonight. What are y'all laughing about over there? Asks Laura Joe. Just life, legs, and putting them on the wrong way, Jim says. Surviving in good spirits, says Matt. It seems that lately the topic of survival had been coming up more and more frequently. Money is getting tight for folks. There has been a recent overdose in the community at the bullpen, and everybody is a bit on edge as a result 
but they keep drinking and smoking, having fun together as always. The bullpen is a gathering place and has been for a long time, a place for misfits, outcasts, oddballs, and outlaws. A place where people know each other's secrets, dark sides, and sins, but don't care. At least not until it causes a problem for the Barr family as a whole. And the man has only just found it somewhat recently, in the last couple years. But felt its magic immediately, and still does. Well, folks, I'm out of here, says Wheeler. Be safe. Text me when you get there, says Laura Joe. All right, maybe, maybe not. Text me if you want to. I'll probably forget between now and then, he says. Goodbyes are shared and received before he and Sally pile into the F-250. He pulls out, forgetting to turn on the truck's lights at first, but realizes it quickly. He pulls down the alley and onto East Street, heading south. He turns right onto Morris and stops at the liquor barn to replenish his beer and cigarette supply, both dangerously low, and drives home, drinking one along the way. He pulls down the back way into his little neighborhood, Old Maywood Road. He finishes the beer and tosses it into the hedge along the out-of-service railroad tracks. He pulls into the driveway of his modest little workshop slash living space. Not quite a legal residence, but nobody seems to care or notice except his immediate neighbor, <clears throat> neighbors who he knows and likes and who are glad he is in the neighborhood. He parks, lets Sally out, telling her, stay with me sensing that she's tempted to sniff out and chase the next-door neighbor's outdoor cat or the gopher living in the field across the street. He grabs her food and water bowls from the truck cab, snags the fresh pack of smokes, rolls up the windows and locks the doors, grabbing the nearly full case of beer from out of the truck's bed, full of wet straw, tree and shrub clippings, yard tools, fertilizer sprayer, and a wheelbarrow. He walks with Sally to the man door of the workshop, unlocks it, and walks in, turns on the lights. He deposits her food and water bowls in their typical place after refilling them both, puts the case of beer in the fridge, and grabs another, cracking it open and drinking some. As he walks towards the couch, preparing to turn on the television, his normal routine being to fall asleep on the couch with something playing on the tube, before eventually waking back up around 3 a.m. and heading into the bedroom. He sits down and grabs the remote control when instantly the lights go out. All of them. Everywhere. All at once. He does not know yet that the great blackout has begun. The interior of the shop is rendered pitch black. Strange, he thinks. There was a thunderstorm last night, but clear skies tonight. As he fumbles for the smartphone in his denim pocket to use as a flashlight. He pushes the button on it. <clears throat> He pushes the button and it doesn't light up. He tries again, but it shows no signs of life. Strange, he thinks again. It had plenty of juice just a moment ago. He pulls the Bic lighter from his pocket and flicks it on, finally illuminating his immediate surroundings. He grabs a candle from the coffee table, ignites the wick, and sits for a moment, initially thinking of how to occupy his time before sleep without electronic entertainment. He suddenly has a thought power bill. Might not have paid it last month. Lots of bills haven't been paid. He decides to grab a candle, light a cigarette, and takes a look outside to see if he's the only one on the block without power. He opens the door and steps into the driveway, 
and sets the candle down on the hood of his truck. It strikes him instantly just how dark it is. The moon isn't yet up, and if not for the cigarette and the candle, he would not be able to see the hand in front of his face. Normally, the glow of the city illuminates the horizon and any moisture in the atmosphere, but this is a crystal clear night, and for the first time since moving to the city, he can see the stars. Not just some, but all of them. All he hears are the crickets chirping at first. Then he hears a low rumble off in the distance, like a distant boom. Then a few moments <clears throat> then a few moments later there is another, then another, seeming to come from all directions. He can't make heads or tails out of what the noises are until he hears the sound like a massive wind gust whooshing overhead, and then a loud crash close by. A Boeing 747 glides into the city dump right in front of him, only a half mile from his workshop, crashing into the landfill and sending massive jet fuel flames into the sky. He hears the unmistakable sound of people screaming in pain. Chapter 14, A Not-So-Pleasant Run He is making his way through the crowded city street, trying to get home on his motorcycle. The blackout has been going for three days, and things are getting hairy. People have taken to the streets on foot, as almost everyone's vehicles would not start or even attempt to. He is trying to find a safe way home, but it seems that every road is crawling with looters. Houses are being broken into, <clears throat> just as businesses and storefronts had been for the first two days. The police had given up after the second night, returning home to protect their own families and properties. The National Guard and every other branch of the armed forces are too busy preparing for potential sieges of their supply depots, armories, and bases to bother with riot control. Knowing no more about what had happened than any, than any average person, the military generally assumes that it is an attack and are therefore preparing for the possibility of foreign invaders. He is riding down Pleasant Run, dodging people the whole way, refusing to slow down or stop for fear of being taken off his bike and murdered for it. His 38 Special snub-nosed revolver is tucked into the front pocket of his blue jeans with the handle sticking out, making it easier to draw if he must. Only five rounds. Let's hope I don't need any of them, he thinks, prophetically incorrect, shifting from fourth gear into third, swinging wide away from a... <clears throat> Away from and around a group of people destroying an abandoned police cruiser with baseball bats, sledgehammers, and metal pipes. Someone is dousing the cruiser with a yellow can of diesel fuel. Someone else is waiting with a lit tiki torch. It is an hour after sunset and the darkness has fallen over the city once more, causing the violence to ramp up quickly. He clears the scene as fast as he can before they seem to notice him or his mode of transport. A half mile later, he comes to an intersection, one he knows well, perhaps too well. It is a bizarre sort of four-way intersection where bad things seem to happen. The same place where he was hit on his motorcycle two summers earlier by what he assumed to be a drunk driver. It was a hit and run. He had seen <clears throat> the incoming car take an unexpected left-hand turn right in front of him without signaling, so he had to lock up his brakes having no time to make a better choice, which caused him to lose control and the bike sl slipped out from under him, behind him, and he slid headfirst into the side of the moving car, collided with it, 
causing him and the bike to st- and the bike still between his knees to pinwheel across the intersection sideways before coming to an eventual rest. The bike was fine, minus a few dents and scrapes, and so was he, relatively, thanks to his helmet and riding jacket. He felt as though someone had beaten the piss out of him with a lead pipe, and he spent two weeks on the couch recovering as a result. This intersection is cursed, he thinks to himself, remembering remembering the previous incident. Why the fuck did I come this way? He shifts down into second gear, engine braking as he approaches. He has a decision to make. There is a couch burning, blocking the road ahead as it bottlenecks, passing under the railroad tracks, his intended course. There are only three other ways to go, left, right, or back the way he came, with the police cruiser about to be lit ablaze and a dozen or more raging rioters carrying clubs and bats with nothing left to bash except for him, more than likely having seen him as he sped past moments before. He fears they may head this way soon either way. He decides to go right, towards an area with fewer houses and more industrial buildings, hoping there will be fewer looters as a result. He makes the turn, but to his dismay, sees people on both sides of the street crouching against the concrete retaining walls, now illuminated by his motorcycle's headlamp. This was a classic bottleneck squeeze, a kill box. His decision to go right was wrong, but it is not too late to change course. Before he reaches the group of 'er ne'er-do-wells lying in wait and hoping to steal a vehicle of some kind or anything else of value, he slams the brakes, this time with more precision and skill than in his previous incident in this intersection. He skids and kicks out the rear tire, turning to the left 90 degrees, stopping perpendicular to his direction of travel and putting down his left foot for balance. He sees the outline of a man standing up with a club of some kind in his hand harder to see with the headlight now pointing the wrong way. As the stranger begins walking towards him menacingly, he pulls his his five-shooter from his jeans pocket and takes aim one-handed, his right arm fully extended, waiting until the target is within a range worth firing at with the snub nose in the dark. At the gun range, he could normally hit out to 15 or 20 yards with relative accuracy, but it is dark, extremely dark. His headlight now illuminates nothing but the flaming couch and the train trestle spanning the pleasant run drive north. He has a hard time seeing his front and rear sights and decides decides he has to shoot by instinctual feel, waiting until the moment is right. Matt sees the dark silhouette get within what feels to him like 10 yards, seeing him by the glow from the flaming couch. Listening to his gut, Matt fires off one shot, throwing a massive fireball from the muzzle and illuminating the intersection for an instant, like a bolt of lightning with a crack of thunder to match. He hears the man fall to the ground like a piece of fresh-cut timber with a large thud. Wheeler can see the man on the ground, only a few feet in front of him, carried closer by forward momentum. He decides to put one more 38 special hollow point into the man's center mass just to be certain illuminating the intersection once more with a flash from his muzzle. The body twitches with a second shot, apparently not quite dead. He looks past the body, partially blinded by the afterimage of the two muzzle flashes, and sees the remaining faceless opportunists fleeing into the shadows, not willing to take a bullet or two for the motorcycle the way their accomplice just had. 
He fires one more round in the general direction to spur on some extra motivation to flee from him, and he hears it ricochet off the concrete retaining wall. He slips his pistol back into his pocket before he grabs the throttle, revving it high, holding the front brake firmly, and dumping the clutch in second gear, causing the rear tire to spin out, creating a screech of rubber on the blacktop and throwing dirt and pebbles from the road. He leans his body hard to the left, looks over his left shoulder, swinging him and the rear end of his motorcycle 90 degrees to the left while the front tire remains stationary. Course correction completed. He lets off the brake and takes off like a bat out of hell. The fat, treaded rear tire grabs traction and nearly causes him to pop a wheelie. He crosses the cursed intersection once again, passes the burning couch, and goes over the bridge spanning Pleasant Run, which is a tributary of the White River and whose waters eventually pour into the Wabash, then the Ohio, before finally merging with the Great Mississippi. This is a leftward... This is the leftward route he had initially chosen against. He crosses the bridge with a trickle of water underneath and hangs an immediate right down Pleasant Run Drive south, which parallels his former route all the way to Raymond Street. He slows down, checking for cross traffic out of habit and caution, but sees none. He is possibly the only one foolish enough to be driving a vehicle of any kind on the roads tonight. Why he had gone to the bar looking for news was now beyond him. It was a dumb idea. Nobody was even there, and what news could they possibly have? Nobody knows much of anything except that they are in danger. Everybody is at home, terrified, whether or not, or whether they were smart enough to have purchased a gun in advance or not. The, the ones with guns clearly stand the best chance of not becoming a victim, while many, or rather all, who never saw the need before wished they had now. All over the city, people are being murdered, gang-raped, and robbed of anything of perceived value. Many looters are looking for cash, not knowing how useless it's about to become with months of darkness still ahead. It is now all about the tangibles, the useful things in the world without electricity, like food, medical supplies, water filters, bullets, knives, tools, cooking fuel, and more. Luckily for Matt, he was relatively rich in these things, though poor in digital and physical dollars, both of which had lost their usefulness overnight. Along Raymond Street, he is able to open up the throttle, trying to get get home as quickly as he possibly can. When he enters the construction zone on Raymond, he drops back down from fifth gear to fourth, then down to third slowing down to dodge the massive potholes and orange reflective barrels, which are now strewn all about, tossed at random, and knocked over by meth-addicted tweakers, who have even less to lose now than they had before, and acting more erratically than ever, feeling as though they are the meek who have, inherited the, who have now inherited the earth. The only people truly adapted to and prepared for this new world, in fact, are the homeless, not noticing much change in their daily lives, except that everyone else has now been brought down to their level of existence, more or less. He successfully navigates through the torn up and disheveled section of road and again opens it up wide, shifting up into the fourth and fifth gears. Top gear, hitting 65 miles an hour on the little air-cooled 200cc four-stroke dirt bike. Maxing out the bike's thumping, or maxing out the bike's throttle and hitting top speed, the single pos- 
The single piston motor screams, thumping away at an unknown number of RPMs as it lacks a tachometer, giving Matt everything it's got. After two miles of hauling ass, he slows down to turn southwest on Kentucky Avenue. A mile later, he pulls into the small neighborhood with only 40 or 50 residential dwellings and a few commercial properties. He slows down on his approach, knowing that the neighborhood is armed and dangerous, but mostly looking to protect itself, untrusting and not altogether trustworthy. He doesn't know everyone, and they don't know him, at least on this street, Old Maywood Road, which isn't the one he lives on. He turns right onto the blacktop into the neighborhood, the lonely strip of pavement has some houses on one side and a decommissioned railroad tracks on the other. He only gets a couple dozen yards down the half-mile stretch before getting a funny feeling in his stomach. He listens to his gut, stops, and again pulls another quick wheel-spinning turn, dropping into second, leaning hard, revving and dumping the clutch, this time committing to a full 180 keeping the front brake held until his he is oriented back towards the way he came, letting it go and speeding off, a stunt that he had never completed successfully until this night, as his life seemingly depends on it, and since adrenaline is one hell of a performance-enhancing drug. He goes back out onto the four-lane Kentucky Avenue and hangs a right, seeing nobody. He zips down to the corner where with the gas station, which is... <clears throat> which is the more open, direct, and less vulnerable path home, uh, with far less possibilities for any surprise attacks, paranoid now after his earlier encounter. This gas station had already been picked clean, but the neighbors had managed to secure a line locking down the area inside of Maywood Road, Tibbs Avenue, Farnsworth Street, and Berwick Avenue, and creating a safety zone in the shape of a wedge letting no looters into their part of the neighborhood thus far. The backside of the neighborhood backs up to a large commercial lot fenced off with razor wire, adding to the natural, fortifi natural fortitude of the tiny urban neighborhood. The neighbors are working in shifts and, <clears throat> and have been since the second night as things ramped up. They keep watch on the three main corners of the neighborhood, guarding all entrances <clears throat> they pushed disabled trucks and cars around, using them as barricades in all the alleys to ensure no unwanted entry was made into their relatively secure zone. Maywood would not fall as easily as other bigger and less connected communities in this city. Randy, it's me. Don't shoot. He yells over the whine of his bike to the next door neighbor who is sitting on the front porch in the shadows of Ionia's tavern on guard detail with another man from the neighborhood, Anthony, the shade tree mechanic, who made his living working on cars in his own driveway and would, and would continue to. They are both sporting AR-15 rifles and had stood up when they heard the bike approaching, whose wine Randy is very familiar with. He knows who it was before the announcement. He had heard Matt make his screeching turn at the far end of the neighborhood, and had a good idea of why Matt had done it. He did not want to get shot by a neighbor on accident or on purpose, and that stretch of road was outside of the safety zone. Where the hell have you been, Matt? Are you fucking crazy riding around on that thing right now? You had better hide it quick before anyone sees. Kill the engine, turn off the lights, and coast down the hill to your place. Get it in the garage, and don't light any candles or lanterns. 
I'll cover you, but watch your back. Don't come out for a while. Stay quiet and stay dark. I'll make sure nobody comes after you. Randy was always an excellent neighbor, but now, in this moment, he had become absolutely invaluable and irreplaceable. Wheeler does as Randy suggests, hiding his precious envy-inducing kickstart carbureted motorbike in the garage, closing the overhead door quickly, locking and double-locking it with a chain and padlock from inside. He grabs his 12-gauge, a Mossberg 500 pump-action shotgun with four shells in the double-aught with four shells of double-op buckshot in the tube and one more in the chamber, each containing eight large BBs which would, if necessary, tear completely through a human body at close distance, sever limbs, or leaving gaping holes through flesh and bone, or anything else in its wake. A formidable weapon. He crouches and waits in the pitch dark with his back against the far wall of one, <clears throat> the far wall of the workshop, aiming the Mossberg towards the front front door seeing nothing but darkness not even the shotgun barrel shotgun's barrel protruding in front of him but listening intently hearing only crickets and a dog barking somewhere in the distance it is shockingly quiet all of a sudden after his desperate ride along pleasant run from the heart of downtown back to maywood after a long few minutes he decides to venture back over to randy unable to calm his nerves sitting alone Finally, though, he calls out, or first, though, he calls out with a short, quiet whistle to Sally, who is hiding under the bed, scared. She doesn't come out. It's okay, Sally. I'll be back in a bit, and I'll light a, I'll light a candle for us, he says, getting no response. It is too dark in the shop, even for her. He pulls his Mossberg across his back using the attached sling. He grabs his AR-15 out of a big cedar chest, slinging it around his neck and across his front side. He pulls an extra mag. He pulls out an extra mag, fully loaded, and slips it into his back left pocket. He then opens the box of 38 special cartridges, grabbing three, doing it all by feel. He carefully, in the dark, pulls the spent shells from his trusty pistol's wheel and replaces them with fresh rounds, flicking the wheel back into the into position with a snap of his wrist hearing the expected click he puts it back in his front right pocket he steps out of the garage's man door locking it behind him and heads back into the street walking through the darkness illuminated only by a sliver of the moon rising he walks towards ionia's towing the three towing the only three guns he owns he gives randy a short whistle warning of his approach a sound which Randy is also familiar with, having heard Matt whistle for Sally so many times before. Randy gives a quiet response whistle, confirming he heard and that it's safe to approach. The man walks up quietly, and when he's close enough to whisper, he says, This town is fucked up, fellas. Tell us something we don't know, says Randy. Anthony, put out that fucking cigarette, whispering sternly, before I put it out for you. Someone might see that thing glowing. If you want to smoke, go inside the bar. Anthony is a black man and Randy a white man, but right now they are simply two humans working together towards a common goal. We've got this for the next few minutes, Randy says. Go on in and get yourself a beer and a smoke. Sounds good to me, says Anthony, who was sometimes called Tony, 
as he steps into Ionia's Maywood Tavern through the front door, closing it behind him with absolutely no light coming from the inside. Who's coming to relieve you? Matt asks quietly. Miguel and Julio in about an hour. They haven't got, or they've got the 11 p.m. to 3 a.m. shift. Glad I don't. I'm fucking exhausted. Haven't slept much the last few nights. Me neither, Randy, and I doubt if anybody has. You mind if I stand with you till they come? Just had an incident downtown. Was trying to see if I could learn anything from some friends at the bullpen, but nobody was there. I needed to catch my breath. Or I need to catch my breath. Hiding in the dark, alone, just ain't what I need right now. He pauses a moment before confessing. I had to kill a man, Randy. Just just to get home. Left him there in the street. There was nothing else I could have done. He was coming for me. Don't you mind it one bit, brother. You did what you had to do, says Randy, needing no further explanation. The young man stands up straighter and takes a deep breath, sighs and whispers back. I know. That's exactly the thing, Randy. He wanted my bike, and I know he would have killed me for it. I don't even feel bad. It was him or me. I chose me. Fuck him. I'm glad you did, youngin. We need more of your kind right now. Too many hooligans and not enough true patriots. You are right to feel exactly as you do. Don't fret it for a minute. Fuck that asshole indeed. He made his choice the moment he tried to take what wasn't his. He got what he deserved. No more, no less. Well, I'm not sure about deserved, Randy, but he chose it. I just gave him what he asked for. That's good, youngin. Keep that mindset. Don't become jaded like me. Keep your morals and don't let any other man take <clears throat> take your life, ever. Don't just Don't start shit, just end it. That said, sometimes it's best to end it before it even starts, if you catch me. Yes, sir, Randy. Thank you for saying so, he whispers. The two stand silently for a minute before Randy rests back down on the old church pew on the porch of the small corner bar, which had closed a few years before. When the blackout began, this little pub was reopened and turned into the neighborhood's HQ, or forward operating base as its porch had good visibility up and down both road, both of the main roads heading into and through the neighborhood. Plus, they decided that if it became necessary, they could retreat into the bar. The first day of the blackout, in the morning after the plane crashed into the landfill, the neighborhood mobilized to secure Ionia's, Ionia's tavern. Plywood sheets were nailed to the inside of all windows so that no light could escape. A vestibule of thick black curtains was hung in a semicircle just inside the door, intended to block all light so that folks entering and exiting the place wouldn't let any light from the inside out, and gun ports had been cut in the plywood of each window so that square sections could quickly be removed to accommodate a rifle or shotgun. The windows already had iron bars on the outside, and the front door is made of thick, heavy oak with many deadbolt locks. A two-by-four piece of wood was leaning against the doorframe, ready to be used as a crossbar lock with brackets installed on either side of the door jamb, so the two-by-four could be dropped into place, adding extra strength against possible invaders who might try to break the door down. It is the closest thing to the Alamo this small neighborhood has, but it's modest, <clears throat> with its modest but effective fortifications. Matt only wishes there were 
armored steel plates instead of plywood sheets over the windows. But that's but it's not bad for a single afternoon's work of volunteer laborers and materials scavenged from around the neighborhood. People now came to sit and talk in hushed tones, playing euchre, hearts, or go fish, and share warm beers and shots of liquor, trying to collectively figure out just what in the hell is going on. The man knows exactly what is going on. It is the fall of Rome. What had caused the blackout remains a mystery to him, though. He thinks it might have been some kind of high-altitude EMP, possibly launched by a foreign adversary, or maybe tactical nukes launched at major electrical supply hubs. What he doesn't know is that the entire globe had gone dark. Not just Indianapolis, the Midwest, or the United States, but the entire world. And what's more, it was neither an accident nor an act of God. If you would like to support the Easy Peasy Podcast, please go to easypeasy.ittybitty.tips. Thanks for listening.